I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And it's time to crash from testosterone withdrawal on this episode of Radio vs. the Martians. We're coming off the big Schwarzenegger panel, and feedback has been very kind. But what I'm most excited to hear about from so many people is the number of listeners we've had who've told us that they are going to go out and watch Commando. <laughs> it, was a, it was a great rediscovery. I don't know how many times I've actually seen it. And Mike, I don't know if you know, but last weekend I spent time in L.A. with my friend John, who's a enormous Sly Stallone fan. And we both met together to see the new movie Escape Plan, which is Schwarzenegger's movie with Stallone. How was that? It was everything you wanted in a movie with both of those guys and really not much logic or sense or really any believability towards it. But it gave you the Schwarzenegger one-liners that you wanted. It gave you the grunts from Sylvester Stallone. And it had something that I'd never seen, and I don't know if we ever will, in a Schwarzenegger movie. It had Arnold Schwarzenegger speaking German. Bubba? Yeah, I, I know. I know. It was really strange. He's in solitary confinement, and he's pretending to go crazy because they need a diversion. And so he starts screaming, and then in a fit of mock delirium, he starts saying the Lord's Prayer in German. And then and then after the Lord's Prayer, he starts saying the first three lines of Thus Begs Zarathustra's Meeting with the Hermit. But he speaks everything up until the, have you heard the news that God is dead? Like, And he's doing it in the strangest sounding Deutsche that I've ever heard. What I love about that is that this may be Arnold Schwarzenegger's Hamlet. I mean, he is feigning <laughs> insanity for the sake of the story. I think that is something that I would love to see. If we can see him argue with a ghost and then think about whether he will or will not kill his foe, I think that we have seen perhaps the greatest production of Hamlet ever. <laughs> oh. But of course, he's going to get a post-mortem one-liner after he runs through Claudius. <laughs> yes. So actually, we did get to see a little bit of Schwarzenegger's Hamlet in The Last Action Hero. Of course. Of course. I think The Last Action Hero was his attempt really to be like Jim Carrey's Truman Show, if you will. Kind of a meta commentary about fame and approving to the rest of the world that I, too, can have a range and be a serious actor. But I think in both ends, well, in both instances, there was so many things that were done right, so many winks and nods that were done right. But just overall, both of them fell flat. I don't know what that is. I think with the case of The Last Action Hero, I think there were a lot of great things in that movie. There were a lot of great gags. I like the ongoing concept because it's taking a step back and Arnold doing a movie about Arnold, not like a biopic, but you know, look at what this phenomenon is. And I think it went a little too cartoony at places that he should live in an Arnold universe. He shouldn't live in a random cartoon universe where all movies exist and there's like cartoon characters literally working at the police right. precinct. <laughs> So I probably wouldn't do that, but I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. 
I think it's a movie that really just needed another draft. Or maybe needed a few fewer drafts. You know what? I read a very, very long piece-by-piece deconstruction of Last Action Hero. And for insiders, for people who actually work in the movie industry, there were a lot of things that were added to be call-outs to various people who worked on Schwarzenegger films that have gone largely unnoticed because people didn't watch the movie and people haven't spent a lot of time analyzing it. So I think it's one of those things that 20 years from now, people will, when <laughs> when they're treating a passed-away Schwarzenegger as some kind of a anthropological study on the late 20th century, I think they're going to find that there was a lot more layers to what was happening in Last Action Hero than we probably originally thought. It's interesting how time has that ability to make us look at a movie differently, or any piece of art for that matter. And one of them that I saw recently written about, I think in the Onion AV Club, but I may be incorrect, was a second look at Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers. Oh, right. Yes, absolutely. I think with the Schwarzenegger thing, we didn't go into a Schwarzenegger movie looking for those layers. And I think a lot of people had a very superficial take on Starship Troopers, including a lot of very respected critics like Roger Ebert, who's a favorite of mine and a big influence on the way I write about movies. They all tend to take it at face value and really miss the point that this was Paul Verhoeven pulling an Andy Kaufman style jab at everybody. And having a bit of a laugh at everyone's expense. Well, not only that, but also a covert take about fascism, because it's a movie that's about fascism. It's a movie that tries to trick the audience into rooting for Nazis. <laughs> and then at the end, realizing that the bugs are probably not the aggressors in this war. <laughs> right. It's really kind of wonderful. The propaganda that's all over the movie, over-the-top, jingoistic dialogue. It's really good. And what I love about it is it, it's played totally straight. Of course. There's never a sense of irony in it. And that's one of the things that I really like Paul Verhoeven. And stay tuned, by the way. Paul Verhoeven is, is a director that we really want to cover here on Radio Versus the Martians. But speaking of new things, Casey, I think I'm going to be announcing this to you as well. Oh, no. Lay it on me. <laughs> we have a new segment on Radio Versus the Martians. I like to call Radio Versus the Mailbag. <laughs> oh, I love it already. What we're going to do is we are going to put an open question out to our listenership because we really want to know where you stand. So here's the question. Are drivers legally obligated to pull their cars over to the shoulder for the Ghostbusters Ecto-1? <laughs> Would you like my take or are we going to wait until the audience chimes in to talk about it? Let's do a little bit of both. Oh, okay. The Ecto-1, that's the Ghostbusters car, has got lights and sirens that it blares as it drives down the street at basically full speed it doesn't look like it obeys traffic signals <laughs> it's not an ambulance though and it's not a fire truck is a paranormal extermination company worth the same amount of respect as other first responders and before we get into it we want to hear from you email us at info at radio versus the martians.com or hit us up on facebook we really want to know what you think but first casey what do you think do people have to pull over for the ghostbusters God, no. No, 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 no. If you had taken the most charitable reading of the first Ghostbusters movie, which is, these are guys that are trying to solve this big problem, but they themselves that really caused the issue? No, 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 no. I don't grant them the bigger authority over other emergency services, because really it's their bungling that causes a lot of the, these problems. They do a lot of damage. <laughs> yes. But I will add that at the hotel in the first Ghostbusters movie, they park the Ecto-1 right outside the entrance and leave the lights on outside. <laughs> 
that as much as they tell the manager they're going to be quiet about it and not embarrass the hotel, they still left the lights on outside. So it still looks like at the very best, and if somebody doesn't catch the logo on the door, that somebody is probably having a heart attack at the hotel restaurant or something. (laughs) I am very curious to see what our listenership comes up with. All I'll say about this is I need to rewatch Ghostbusters 1 and 2. We want to hear from you folks. Drop us an email, info at radioversusthemartians.com. Grab us on Facebook. Message us on Twitter. We really want to know what you think of this. Do I, as a driver in the fictional New York City of the 1980s, have to pull over if the Ghostbusters are coming in my rearview mirror? So speaking of emails, we did get one email that I really want to get to. Our good friend Andy Capellish emails us with what he calls a call to action. Mm -hmm. Andy says... As an episode one apologist, not starting strong, (laughs) as an episode one apologist, I can't say that Caravan of Courage or Battle for Endor was better, but I can affirm that the Ewoks are in fact my shit. (laughs) Episode one is completely watchable, but the movie is flawed to be sure. But come on, pod racing is baller, Neeson killed it as Qui-Gon, and the Duel of the Fates fight scene is unparalleled in science fiction sword fighting. Episode one, check it out. I just want to say before we get started that Andy is actually a very, very nice guy. He's a friend of the show, so don't start mailing him boxes of your own poop. (laughs) I think there's room for people to be super fans of episode one. I think that it might creep in on so bad it's good territory, though. I don't. (laughs) I know that there are movies that are so bad they're good. I think those movies have a tendency to be very sincere and they're really trying something. Episode one just feels so cynical to me. It really feels like Lucas is more interested in forwarding special effects and digital filmmaking and not so much the story that he wants to tell. This doesn't feel like a movie that's been burning in the back of his brain for 30 years. This feels like a cynical attempt to make himself relevant in filmmaking where he's been quietly super relevant for the past 30-something years, where most big special effect movies and these huge advances in sound technology have come from him. But he doesn't get the same credit as when you have the big Star Wars logo in yellow disappearing into the distance against a space field. I think he wanted to put his name back on the map. Unfortunately, I think it backfired. And Andy, I will say this. Duel of the Fates is a glorious piece of movie music. I think it's great. Yeah. I would say that of all the problems with the Star Wars prequels, John Williams is not one of them. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I would say this, that he actually steps up his game in a big way in the Star Wars prequels. Yeah, I probably would have liked to hear some more traditional Jedi Star Wars themes being fit back into those movies to help them feel a bit more familiar. But the themes that he does create are really sweeping stuff. I just wish they were in a better movie. But I will make this argument about the episode one lightsaber fight. I don't think it's that good. Yeah. The reason I don't think it's that good is that nothing's really happening in that scene. People are fighting, but it's about as exciting as those fan videos that people do with the really polished choreography. I don't think that anything character-wise or story-wise is happening there. There's no real beef between these characters. There's nothing that's being resolved. Yes, there's flashy choreography, but that flashy choreography could have been put on top of a better story. And here's where I say again the question of the Duel of the Fates music. I think that that soaring, epic-sounding theme made that fight scene better than it would have been if it had been put against the same kind of score that you normally see in Star Wars. If it had a standard John Williams score, and this is a falsifiable claim. (laughs) I would say this is a hypothesis that you can test. I would love to see somebody take music from another part of John Williams' repertoire 
another Star Wars theme, another action scene, a, a really good one, and put it over that same fight scene. And I don't think it would feel quite as good. I think that it feels like John Williams is helping to overcompensate for the poor quality of the movie. Yeah, I think that there was this sort of idea that there was a drought of so many years between when there was just some awesome Star Wars lightsaber battles happening that when really the only notable good lightsaber action, because remember that the rest of the entire action in the movie is done against droids, which if you see the first couple droids go down in that movie, you realize that it's just not as compelling, right? Because they're CGI droids. I think that people were so starved for it that when it came along, you're right, the juice that Duel of the Fates gave it, along with our fatigue from not seeing it, we kind of got a little excited about it. To me, it seems kind of like Paula Abdul's lightsaber battle. Like, I feel like <laughs> I feel like maybe Darth Maul and Obi-Wan Kenobi are a little bit like the Fly Girls from In Living Color, and it's a little too dancey for me. Yeah, it doesn't feel like anything's happening. <laughs> but speaking of things happening in Star Wars... Oh, yes. There is a discussion that me, Casey, and Sam Mulvey had while we were recording our Star Wars panel. We had briefly lost a Skype connection to our good friend Paul Rue. Conversations led us to talk about character and plot element that had popped up in The Empire Strikes Back and something that we really think fans get wrong. Lando Calrissian gets a bad rap for being the one that sells out Han and the crew, when in reality, he is the one who saves them. He couldn't have betrayed an entire space station full of people, knowing that the Empire was going to show up there anyways. Insofar as, yes, he does offer a betrayal for them, but he more than makes up for it afterwards. So holding on to the animosity towards Lando Calrissian, I just don't think is justified. Well, I think it comes about because Lando is not the main character of the movie. You're following Han, Leia, and Chewie for most of that movie. They're being chased by the Empire, and they go to what they think is a safe haven, which is this city in the clouds run by his old college buddy. <laughs> the problem, though, is that when you actually look at it from Lando's point of view, it's a very different story. Sure. Lando's kind of a scoundrel, too, in the same way that Han Solo is. These are both guys that operate on, I guess you could say, the black market economy. These are guys that do things that are quasi-legal or straight-out illegal, who are good at dealing with the seedy underbelly of space society. <laughs> the difference, though, is that Lando tends to operate on the upscale version of smuggling and ill repute, and Han lives out of his car. I totally agree with you. Yes, the Millennium Falcon is his broken-down van. Though Lando becoming quote-unquote respectable and assuming the responsibility for basically lots of other people's lives on his shoulders, it elevates him in a way that a Han Solo prior to the end of A New Hope could never have hoped to achieve. He's an upstanding, I think they even use that phrase, you become an upstanding citizen, right? He kind of gets teased about doing that. And so I would say he's justified making the deal, one, if he feels like he has an A or a B plan to feel like how he's going to might rescue Han. Also, he's justified because if the Empire comes in and takes over his operation, he can't keep those people safe anymore. From Lando's point of view, again, this is a guy who probably went from operating out of a CD bar to having administration over what is probably the cleanest location in all of Star Wars. <laughs> yes, it seems pretty new, actually. I mean, everything is bright and shiny. There's people living there by the thousands, doing business with him. This is a guy who's really moved up in the world. And I bet you the Millennium Falcon even looked better when he owned it. It probably didn't have as many burns on it. It didn't have that Wookiee smell. <laughs> yeah. 
And even at the very end, you see Lando basically wearing a cleaned and ironed version of the Han Solo outfit. Absolutely. So you're like, oh, so that's what it looks like when you actually watch it. <laughs> this is a guy who's really moved himself up in the world. And he's got responsibilities. He's got colleagues. He's got people that rely on his leadership. He's got people who he has business dealings with. And suddenly, Lando Calrissian has become Charles Grodin. This scruffy friend that he knew from college who he lost a game of cards to has come back with the van that he used to own. He's now living out of it, and he's a wanted fugitive, and he just brought the fuzz down on my city. (laughs) That city, by the way, that has a lot of customers that want to be under the Empire's radar. What is he going to do? Imperial Star Destroyer has just showed up, and they said, oh yeah, by the way, this wanted criminal is showing here, and by the way, we know you exist now. So even if this goes to plan, even if this goes every way that Lando wants... At the end of the day, he's lost at least half of his customers because now fucking Darth Vader showed up at the city. I don't feel safe knowing that my quasi-legal transaction is under that dude's radar. The guy who fucking strangles his immediate inferiors (laughs) has showed up and showed that this place is not as private as it once was. So best case scenario, his business is fucked. Han Solo has destroyed... Lando Kilrizian's life in a single day just by showing up. Well, in answer to this, we posed this question to Todd Maxfield Matsumoto, the composer of our theme song and panelist on the last show. And he said, well, you also have to weigh in the fact that, you know, when Han first meets them at the landing platform, he does this sort of like, eh, am I going to hug you? Am I going to punch you? Like he's really selling up the, oh, I'm a friendly guy sort of thing knowing full well that he's also going to walk them to the dinner table, have this elaborate (laughs) reveal where he, like, walks them, oh, have dinner, and then the door opens and Darth Vader is there. So, you know, that could be viewed as him being kind of a dick. That is a total dick move. I will concede that. That is the dick move. However, in the overall big-picture question of is he going to turn Han over to the bounty hunter or Darth Vader, I think the real question is what happens if he says no? What happens if Lando says no to Darth Vader and says, I'm not going to help you? Is the Empire just going to go away? Are they going to go, oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't know you felt that way. I'm going to leave now and let these fugitives go free. No, there's no way. They would have either thrown him in the stockades or put him against a wall and shot him. And there would have been a bloodbath at Cloud City. They, don't, they can't fight the Empire. Right. You know how many Star Destroyers there probably were hovering over that planet? And how many TIE fighters there were just waiting to just pour down on them and blow away those little i don't know what it is like a unicycle bike for two type things that they have guarding the city (laughs) those things don't look like they could put off a mass invasion no 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 at best lando has to put out a mass email telling everybody this is a one-time event and that hey don't worry that's a guy i used to know from college Nothing is fucked. (laughs) But again, the reputation of Cloud City is really damaged by that. Worst case scenario, they ruin his life. And of course, over the course of the story, he realizes that Darth Vader has no intention of keeping any deal with him whatsoever. And he's the one who rescues Leia and Chewie. You know, it's very interesting. I recall a long time ago hearing Billy D. Williams on an interview talk about this and that he said this sort of reaction and people being angry at Lando and by extension angry at Billy D. Williams followed him throughout his entire life. Like he said, picking his kids up from school and being the carpool dad, some of these kids wouldn't talk to him because they were so upset that Lando betrayed Han Solo. So you got to feel bad for the guy. 
Oh, yeah. I know that a lot of actors have that same problem. I know that Lena Headey, who does the role of Cersei Lannister on A Game of Thrones, gets a lot of shit from people because they hate her character. They're so used to seeing this character do these terrible things to characters that they like that they have a hard time separating it. And I guess on one level, you can take it as a compliment that people like the performance you're doing, that what you're doing works and people are engaged in the story and care about the characters. On the other hand, it really sucks to get that shit all the time. (laughs) And if you're in a movie like Star Wars, it really becomes part of your legacy and your career forever. You're always going to have a role in Star Wars. There are certain roles like James Bond, Doctor Who, Star Wars, Star Trek, any major franchise, that if you become a part of that, you're always going to have been a part of that. And if you need the money, you can always do the convention circuit. And guess what? you got to market yourself as that character from Star Wars. And I'm sure that there's some people who are really bitter about that. I think that Shatner was for a really long time. But I think after a while, you really learn to embrace it because there's these people who love something you did. And as an actor, I'm sure it may get annoying to hear about the same thing over and over. But somebody cares about something you did. There's a lot of actors who don't even have that. Mm -hmm. I'll look at it this way. I will look at Billy D. Williams... And I probably liked him more as playing Harvey Dent from Batman 89. For all two seconds. But he, yes, for all of two seconds. But to me, I think the character becomes more well-rounded because look what happens in Return of the Jedi. In the very next movie, he's a general, and he's the one piloting the Millennium Falcon, just like Han Solo did, doing the heroic blow-up-the-Death-Star run. So I think even in the Star Wars story itself, even in the overt plot lines, he's not only redeemed himself, but hell, he's as big of a hero as Luke Skywalker was from the first movie. Probably even a bigger hero because he helps coordinate the attack. So I think he's redeemed, and I think we might just need to let go of some of our prejudices and give Lando the epitaph he deserves. Thinking more and more about this, I think once this conversation started, I kept revisiting it. (laughs) Lando has become my favorite character in Star Wars. Mm, Interesting. He's the scoundrel type character that I really like. I think some people get caught up in the Jedi stuff. That's cool. But I've always been more of a Han, Lando, Chewie type guy. I kind of like the guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who can get you into a place, (laughs) who will shoot you under the table, who knows how to break into things, who has a really cool ship. I really kind of like that smuggling sort of thing. And with Lando, I get that. Plus, I get a guy who wears a cape. (laughs) And he drinks cold 45. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And even when he becomes a general, you can tell that he said, like, that's a nice uniform. Could use a cape. (laughs) And gives himself a cape. He has the coolest uniform in Star Wars. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Before we go, there is one thing I want to say. And I want to first throw out a big thanks to everyone who's been listening to Radio vs. the Martians for the past year. Because guess what? We're almost a year old. Wow, that's incredible. Our very first episode came out in January. It's almost the next January. We've got a lot of great stuff planned for 2014. We can't wait to let you hear about it. So if you like what we do, please do like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. And here's the really important one. Please rate and review our show on sites and apps like Stitcher Radio and iTunes, because those ratings and reviews put us in that, if you like this podcast, recommendation spots that you really want to be in if you want to get more people to hear about us. Let people know about us. Forward us on Facebook. Please save us. (laughs) And I think we would be remiss if we didn't use this opportunity to announce next panel episode show. Yes, we are going to go back to probably the nerdiest corner of modern geekdom. Yes, we are talking about the religious rights old bugaboo, (laughs) Dungeons and Dragons. Well, bugbears, elves, beholders, beware. 
I think we're going to have a great time talking about not only the role-playing game itself, but how it changed all of geek culture and how its various incarnations are basically, in fact, everything that we know and love about geek culture and it's still a massive franchise today it's an odd one because you look at geek culture so much of it becoming mainstream people love lord of the rings not just the nerds people love star wars not just the nerds star trek is becoming as, as popular it's funny how mainstream doctor who has gotten from as obscure as it was in the 1960s through 80s and dungeons and dragons still kind of under the radar People know that it exists in a way that few franchises do. People have a vague idea of what Dungeons and Dragons are. People sitting in a dark room with their friends drinking Mountain Dew and rolling dice and scratching things down on pieces of paper. So we're going to dig right into that because I know that both Casey and myself have a certain history with this game and we want to share that bizarre misspent youths where we could have been out drinking, smoking, and talking to girls. (laughs) That sounds so inviting, Mike. (laughs) I'm so excited for it, Mike. With that in mind, we look forward to seeing you on the next panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. How you doing, Chewbacca? You still hanging around with this loser?